Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the Supreme Court rules that the federal carbon tax is constitutional, but the decision doesn't end the political battle over how best to fight climate change. The Auditor General finds serious failures in the Health Canada response to the pandemic and in the government's massive infrastructure spending. Auditor General Karen Hogan will be here with her findings. And we'll be joined by our political panel of political commentators. I'm Martin Stringer sitting in for Peter Van Dusen and we will begin with that report from Canada's Auditor General. Karen Hogan issued a series of reports on the pandemic to Parliament today. Among her findings, the Public Health Agency of Canada could have been better prepared for the pandemic and the federal government ignored two decades worth of warnings to improve its systems. The auditor also found that the agency failed to properly follow up with incoming travellers facing quarantine. She also found good and bad with the rollout of those emergency financial supports during the pandemic. And she's also got some serious concerns with the federal government's massive infrastructure program. Auditor General Karen Hogan joins me now. Karen Hogan, thanks for taking the time. Hi, thank you for having me. There's so much in this report, but let's walk through it. Uh, Can we start with the um, pandemic response from the Federal Public Health Agency? You say that the agency could have and should have been better prepared for the pandemic. What were the key key findings or the key failings of the agency? Well, what we found in our audit was that, um, as you mentioned, the public health agency wasn't as well prepared as it could have been. And, and I would highlight that or categorize it in four uh, big areas. Uh, first, it was the emergency health plans um, had not been updated. More importantly, the federal, provincial and territorial response plan had not yet been tested. The second thing was that there were many longstanding issues about sharing of surveillance information with the provinces, territories and the federal government had hadn't been addressed, including, um, you know, increasing the capacity of the IT infrastructure in order to handle the sharing of that data. Uh, We saw a risk assessment tool that was outdated. um, And then finally, um, they, they just weren't prepared or hadn't planned for a nationwide uh, quarantine. Okay, what do you mean by that risk assessment tool that wasn't uh, wasn't the, the right kind of tool? Can you explain that? Well, they have a risk assessment tool that um, it, it predicts the risk that a virus uh, will spread. And uh, the tool was a pilot tool, so it hadn't yet been tested. Okay. But the tool was not designed to consider a pandemic. And so it didn't consider um, that the, the spread um, from another country to Canada, only once what, what would happen once it was in Canada. Okay. And hence, it underestimated the risk of the virus. And it remained at low until the chief public health officer uh, intervened and requested that it be raised based on her knowledge of what was going on across the country and across the world. Okay. You expressed discouragement and you alluded to it that the agency dragged its feet, that it had warnings and that for as much as two decades, things could have been done, issues could have been addressed. Uh, Can you give an example? Well, absolutely. Uh, we've we've had findings dating back to 1999 in some of our audits, uh, again in 2002 and in 2008, um, and most of them centered around the sharing of health information with the provinces and territories. Uh, being able to have um, 
our information about symptoms, for example, in a timely way really doesn't help inform the response and change the response as it needs to change in reaction to an emerging virus. And so those are the kinds of things that we had identified that even the department had identified in its own lessons learned following H1N1 and SARS. Okay. And so it was discouraging that they hadn't addressed those in all this time. Okay, another another thing you touched on was the adequate, you said that the, there was not adequate follow-up, and this made it to the news of travelers uh, to Canada during the pandemic. Uh, who had were supposed to be self-isolating or quarantining. Uh, what, what kind of concerns did you have? So we saw that the public health agency really hadn't planned or anticipated a nationwide quarantine of this scale. They recognized that they needed some additional help and capacity and got some support from other departments, uh, but they set a target to follow up with every traveler um, that needed to quarantine. And in two-thirds of the cases, uh, they did not follow up and were unable to let us know whether or not the, con the quarantine measures were actually effective. Okay, let's, let's look at something on which you were more even-handed in the sense that you saw some positive and some negative, and that is the multi-billion dollar uh, support programs, the CERB, which is the emergency benefit, as well as the wage benefit. Uh, how did the federal government do? So in both of those cases, in the emergency subsidy for individuals and in the wage subsidy for employers, uh, we saw the Department of Finance, the Canada Revenue Agency and Employment and Social Development Canada collaborating well together. They designed a program in record time and rolled it out. Uh, they, input, they implemented some prepayment controls, but uh, they really, in some cases, missed an opportunity to implement some controls that they should have been. Mm -hmm. They prioritized the speed of getting a benefit to Canadians and put emphasis on post-payment controls, which is going to be the subject of, a, of, of another audit uh, from our office uh, mm -hmm. because it's a really important matter to, to follow up on. So in other words, following up on how they follow up on people who have defrauded or, or gotten payments wrongly. Absolutely. We're going to be looking at how they, they finalize that plan. So they still haven't finalized that post-audit payment plan. Uh, but we want to see how they're going to design identifying whether payments were made in error and then recovering those payments if need be. You called for something which is essential and very important, and that is a post-pandemic independent review of how this country responded to the pandemic. Why and what kind of review? I absolutely think, think that we need to sit back as a country and, and look at our response and figure out how to be better prepared for the next crisis or health emergency might, that might come our way. As the Federal Auditor General, I can only look at uh, federal programs and federal spending, and I can't look at provinces and municipalities. And what we've seen through the pandemic is that so much of the response, because it's health-related, is governed by the provincial and municipal governments. And hence, we really do need an independent review across the whole nation to make us better prepared, to put some value on preparedness. Okay, uh, we're racing through a lot of things, but you also reviewed this huge multi-billion dollar, $188 billion infrastructure program called the Invest in Canada program. Uh, this has been criticized in, on different accounts uh, by the parliamentary budget officer. Uh, what did you find when you looked at this massive uh, keynote program of the, of the Trudeau government? 
Well, the Investing in Canada plan is really a horizontal initiative. And so what does that mean? It means that there are so many departments across the federal government that are involved in it that have that receive common funding and should have a common goal. What we found is the lead department, which is Infrastructure Canada, was unable to report on the progress um, that all of these initiatives were making and, and whether or not it would be on target to meet the objectives of the okay. plan. This is not not a new issue. It's it's one we've seen often on horizontal initiatives that really does need to be addressed. And is the money getting out there on time or do they not even know if the money is getting out there on time? Because I know the parliamentary budget officers referred to delays and money not getting out the door. I think we had the same finding as the parliamentary budget officer. We saw that in the first three years of the program, about $9 billion had not been spent as planned and pushed off into future years. Uh, and no one was really tracking the effect that that might have on all these, on the meeting the objectives of the actual plan. Um, and so the, the, the spending is just pushed to later, um, might risk the delay of the projects being completed on time and the plan meeting its objectives. Okay, Karen Hogan, I want to thank you very much. I know a lot of people in Ottawa and across the country watch your observations, pay attention to your observations, and will respond to them. Thanks for uh, speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Federal ministers provided their responses to the Auditor General's report today on the issue of her criticism of the performance of the Public Health Agency of Canada and its performance faced with the pandemic. Here's what Health Minister Patty Haidu had to say. The Public Health Agency of Canada uh, was a relatively small agency. And in fact, since uh, the report uh, uh, study timeframe has concluded, we've expanded the agency by more than a thousand employees to date to bolster our capacity in a number of critical areas. And this just reflects, I think, the challenge of such a heavy operational lift without the appropriate uh, level of staffing, the level of expertise. We turn now to a landmark decision from the Supreme Court today. In a 6-3 decision, the court found that the federal carbon tax is constitutional, ending a two-year legal fight by some provinces. Today's Supreme Court decision reaffirms that carbon pricing is integral to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and responding to the existential threat of climate change. As of today, the federal government can continue to use a price on pollution as one key element of its comprehensive climate plan because climate change impacts Canadians no matter where they live in this country. We are obviously disappointed with that decision. The Supreme Court ignored the Alberta Court of Appeals warning and discovered a new federal power that erodes provincial jurisdiction and undermines our constitutional federal system. While today's decision does effectively end our legal avenues as a province, it does not end our opposition to this costly and ineffective tax. And just because Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has the legal right to impose a carbon tax, I would say that it doesn't mean that he should. The federal carbon tax was passed by Parliament in 2018 and was imposed on provinces without a carbon tax or one that fails to meet the minimum standards for pricing emissions for industry and consumers. It's now in place for Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, New Brunswick, Nunavut and Yukon. 
The federal government argues carbon pricing is a matter of national interest and justified under its constitutional powers. Lower courts in Ontario and Saskatchewan sided with the federal government. The Alberta court ruled against Ottawa. The current federal tax is set at $30 per tonne of greenhouse gas emissions, rising to $170 per tonne by 2030. It applies to almost all fossil fuels, including gasoline. 90% of revenues collected are rebated to consumers. The rest is provided to public institutions, such as hospitals, to fund measures to reduce their carbon footprint. Joining me now is a federal minister and longtime environmentalist, Stephen Guibault. Mr. Guibault, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, the Supreme Court has ruled that the federal government has the right to impose minimum carbon pricing on the provinces. So what is your government's message tonight to those, recal those, those, those reluctant provinces? Well, I think the, 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 the Supreme Court ruling puts to debate as to whether or not we should act and, the, and whether or not the federal government can act on climate change behind us. So now let's work together, all of us. Uh, there's a couple of provinces that have their own system, which is totally possible under, under the federal scheme uh, that was put forward in 2016. Quebec has its own system. British Columbia has its own system. And now those provinces that, that challenge the, the authority of the federal government uh, to do that basically have two choices. They can, they can go with the federal system, which is, in, which is in place right now, or they could decide to come up with their own system, which, will, which would need to pass an equivalency test, which is the case for British Columbia and Quebec. Okay, so what are you, what are you uh, making could, of what you're hearing from the provinces? Because we've had response from, from Alberta, from Saskatchewan. We had even comments from Manitoba, which has a bit of an outstanding case. But what are you making of what you're hearing? Well, I think I've I've heard I've heard from from Quebec, Ontario, uh, which in in both cases have said that you know they were disappointed with with the Supreme Court ruling, but that the debate was over now and and they were going to I mean Quebec already has a system. I'm not exactly sure what Ontario uh, it was hinted at, but they did they seem to to take notice and now ready to move on to to, to something else. Will they will they do their own system? Will 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 they use the federal system? I'm not sure. I, I think the same is true of Saskatchewan. I, I don't think that, uh, that, that, that the premier is pleased, um, to, to, to say the least, with the ruling. But I, I think I, I think I heard him say as well that he was, you know, the debate is over now. Let, let's move right. on. I clearly uh, Premier Kenny seems to, um, to 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 be operating on a different reality. I mean, I, I heard part of his press conference, which kept referring to a a ruling by a, by an Alberta court, but but ignored the Supreme Court ruling. So I, I'm not sure what, okay. what what's happening there. Well, let me ask you then some of the one thing that came up from Premier Kenny and was also mentioned by Premier Pallister, who has a, a separate problem with the, the government. But they are both accusing Ottawa of a double standard. They're saying that uh, both Premier Kenny and Premier Pallister are suggesting that your government is letting Quebec off more lightly is the expression, that it's being allowed to impose a carbon price per tonne, which in under the cap and trade system, which is only a fraction of the amount that Ottawa is going to impose on the provinces, uh, the, uh, the rest of the provinces. How do you respond to that? Well, um, Manitoba and Alberta could could have the same system as as the Quebec government uh, tomorrow morning if they wanted, uh, and if it had the same stringency as as Quebec does, um, then it would pass the, the federal equivalency test. So if they're so envious of it, they could go ahead and adopt it. There's nothing preventing them from from doing it. Uh, it is true that the, that the, 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 the price per tonnage is less in Quebec 
than at the federal level. But these are two different systems. And, and when looking at uh, equivalency, the, 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 the price per ton is not the only thing we're, we're looking at. The, 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 the Quebec system is very broad in terms of its coverage. It's one of the broadest uh, in the world, actually. Uh, so there are a number of factors that, 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 that go into the, the evaluation of the stringency of a system. But again, you know, um, uh, J- Jason Kinney, uh, Premier Pallister, Pre- Premier Moore, if you like the Quebec system, go for it. I- I'm sure. In fact, I think the Quebec government indicated today that they would welcome other provinces joining them. So, hey, let's do it. OK. Now, in terms of, as you know, the provinces who had gone to court against you, they were having imposed on them the federal uh, carbon tax. Uh, is there any room in the federal position for any modification in your backstop that you, if they choose to have this imposed on them, is there any room for modification in terms of what Ottawa is going to be imposing on them if they do not produce their own programs? Uh, first, it's, I mean, I know often people refer to it as, as the carbon tax. It is not a tax. And in fact, the Supreme Court of Canada, right. in, its, in its ruling today, define why it's not a tax. Um, so, I mean, we should refer to it as, as carbon pricing. It's a levy. Right. I the know regime. some people will say there, okay. there's no difference, but there is, uh, uh, there is, there is a difference. Um, no, I don't, think, I don't think the idea is for, is for us to, I mean, we, we've said uh, for, for many years now, we need to do more on climate change, not less. Um, we announced a new federal plan back in December, which shows how Canada will do even more. And, and provinces need to step up to the plate as well. Um, we, we're more than willing to do our part. We want to sit down and discuss with provinces how, how this can be done. But it's not about, about giving a free pass to people, about, about going easy. It's about going at this hard and fast, but working together while doing it. And in fact, uh, today of all day, the American Petroleum Institute, which has historically opposed just about every measure having to do with climate change, uh, a U.S., one could have argued a a climate denialist organization, came out today of all day saying that um, the U.S. should also adopt carbon pricing to make their companies more competitive in a more and more climate-constrained world. Okay, a last, uh, last question politically. I mean, obviously the legal battle's over. The highest court of the land has spoken, and there, is no, there are no further legal, legal avenues, but there is a political battle, and for those recalcitrant, those reluctant provinces uh, who took you to court, some of them are still saying that this is an era of big brother government, Ottawa imposing on the provinces a, a one-size-fit-all, or it's uh, sort of basically putting the hammer down. How do you respond to those political criticisms which are continuing? Well, during the last federal election, Canadians voted in the order of 75% uh, for political parties which support carbon pricing. The, 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 obviously, the, the, the Liberal Party of Canada, the, the, the New Democratic Party, the Bloc Québécois, the Greens. Um, so, I mean, more than three Canadians out of out of four believe that this is something we need to do. Um, our our approach is not a one size fit all. As I said earlier, we we have two provinces in Canada right now that have two very different systems that can coexist under uh, under the federal government scheme. So we're we're happy to contemplate proposals from provinces, but proposal about climate action, not about how we can do less, but how we can do more. Okay, Stephen Gibo, thank you very much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
Let's bring in our panel of political commentators. Susan Smith is a liberal commentator. Tim Powers is a conservative commentator. And Kareem Farouk is an NDP commentator. All three of you, welcome. Thanks Hi, for having hello, us, Martin. Okay, let's start with uh, a sales job. You, all three of you are in the business of communicating. Let's talk about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, the changing messaging and the changing fortunes of the AstraZeneca vaccine. We've seen all sorts of problems with it in terms of people's perception. Today, we saw Health Canada saying that they're going to put labels on the vaccine, even although all health authorities seem to suggest there's no proof of a connection with uh, potential blood clots and all that, but it's now going to have a label bearing that possibility. Um, what, what, Susan, what, uh, how could the government, how could Health Canada, how can anyone be, do, how can they do a better job to try and sell this vaccine? Yeah, this is tough. And I think it's, it's up to the government. It's also up to the company itself. I mean, AstraZeneca isn't really helping itself a whole lot either. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to get role models out. The reality is the vaccine is safe. We need to get it into the arms of as many people as possible, and we need to do it as quickly as possible. So I think the government, if we could find a way in a nonpartisan uh, manner to get every leader of the party or some of our premiers and so on to sit and, and take the AstraZeneca vaccine and agree not, not to scream that there's line jumping or anything else like that taking place, it may instill more confidence. At the same time, we also reach, need to reach into the communities where there is vaccine hesitancy. There's an amazing program going on, for example, in the South Asian community in, in BC, in the Lower Mainland. We need to replicate those kinds of campaigns so that we're addressing the areas where there's concern. Tim, any advice? I mean, it's been said that the, the AstraZeneca, the company, could be its own worst enemy. At the beginning of the week, we saw them <laughs> not giving all the full data or different data to the United States authorities, and the United States authorities saying we haven't been given timely or proper data. Uh, Tim, any advice? Well, we're... Yeah, we're all available to be hired, Martin. So that's the first bit of advice. Of course, they should do that. Uh, I, I just build on what Susan said. Look, um, get some social influencers, not just politicians, but others out there uh, who are more viewed to be more credible, uh, fairly or unfairly, by the broad Canadian public. Uh, and look, this thing with labels, anybody who takes any any kind of medication will see a warning label, a caution label on their medication. There's nothing new around all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not surprised by all of that. Um, and yeah, look, Christine Elliott, I think, has gone out and getting an AstraZeneca shot. Others are doing it. Just example, example, more photos yeah. of people doing that and lots of stories about from those who've already done it about how they're feeling fine. I think that will help this uh, this pass. Okay, Kareem, just briefly on this, I want to move to uh, more partisan issues. Kareem, any idea? Yeah, I, usually on political stuff, I usually turn seldomly to my one-woman focus group, which is my mom, and she happens to be in that age group, 69-year-olds, and I'm happy to report she's going to be vaccinated in 10 days, and she's really happy about it, doesn't know yet what vaccine she's going to get, but doesn't really matter to her okay. she's happy to uh, as soon as possible go out and uh, meet her friends that she hasn't seen in a year so i am agreeing with my two colleagues i think on top of politicians giving uh, you know the, the the photo op i think just smiles of people coming out of vaccination center would go a long way to do ads on that people are eager to go outside 
they, they want to go and, and meet their families and their grandparents. I think those types of images will go a long way to incite people to go and get vaccinated. Okay, and it also sounds as if your mother is repeating one of the messages, and that is any vaccine is a good vaccine. Okay, the Supreme Court ruling today, um, the federal carbon tax is constitutional. The legal dispute is over. So what are the consequences now on the political front? Where does a political battle over the carbon tax go from here? Susan. Well, in a perfect world, it would stop, but the world isn't perfect. The Supreme Court has said, guess what? Carbon pricing is a problem across Canada. You can't put up walls between the provinces. There's carbon leakage, and we all need to do something. The federal plan is voluntary to the extent that provinces can decide what they put into place. And if they don't put something into place, there's a federal backstop. And there are federal, there are rebates, there are dollars that go back into the pockets of the citizens of those provinces should their governments decide not to do anything. So I think the issue should be settled for once and for all, but I suspect Jason Kenney will never leave anything alone if he can take a poke at the federal government. Okay, Tim Powers, I mean, for the federal conservatives, this again reignites the issue mm-hmm. of uh, climate change and uh, Aaron O'Toole's got this now back on his plate. Yeah, he's got to pivot. Um, I, I think so. And, and we're seeing some examples today of pivoting happen. Uh, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan talking about coming forward with a plan while expressing his frustration. I think Premier Kenny already has said something to that effect. Aaron O'Toole can do what he's doing and say he'll scrap the carbon tax for now, but he does have to have a pivot plan. And I think he's going to be forced now, uh, Martin, to come forward sooner rather than later with the credible climate plan that he's he's talking about. But the court case gives him opportunity, gives the premier's opportunity to say, you know what? We fought as hard as we could. We went as far as we could. And we may take away the tax that's there now, but we have to deal with this issue. Uh, that's what I would do. Deal with this issue, say you fought as hard as you could, and find a way to pivot to success. That's interesting. Kareem, would you agree that this could actually be an opportunity for Aaron O'Toole, for whom many people have suggested this is not an easy issue, but he can now use the court ruling as a way of re- restarting the whole debate within his, even his faithful, his party faithful? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> we saw that the last weekend he, he was lacking some arguments to definitely push uh, his resolution over. Maybe the court ruling will have that additional argument to his, uh, to his base saying, listen, this is constitutional. Now, I did notice today, and not only today, but in the last few days, that Mr. O'Toole is saying that he will repeal Justin Trudeau's carbon tax yeah. and not exactly. the carbon tax. So I'm suspecting, as you mentioned on Monday, that he was pre- going to present something uh, as an alternative. And now it'll be, it'll be, and it'll be um, for Canadians to decide if that's credible. Now, if that alternative plan is well received within the conservative base, I would suspect Canadians would say, well, that's not credible. And that's the paradox that Mr. O'Toole is facing. In order to be credible, he needs to anger his base on the environmental. And that's not a, 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 a easy needle to thread. Okay, I want to ask uh, now a last topic in just 30 seconds from each of you. But what you're seeing, the Conservatives are intent on these motions where they are going to try to get uh, senior Liberal staffers uh, uh, in front of parliamentary committees on both the issue of uh, allegations of sexual impropriety from the Chief of Defence Staff as well as on the We Charity. We've just heard from uh, Liberal House Leader Pablo Rodriguez that they are going to instruct those Liberal senior staffers not to appear. Uh, This is an attempt, one would think, to create a new narrative or to reinforce a narrative that the Conservatives feel is a positive one for them. Susan. Well, the Conservatives are trying to change the topic, as as, uh, Kareem alluded to. 
um, Aaron O'Toole's had a really bad week. He was supposed to have a big conference or the big convention and he, and you know, with momentum and leadership and, and his mark on the party. And he emerged with none of the above. He emerged as a weakened leader. So they're trying to do anything they can to change the topic from climate change and the 54% uh, delegates rejecting the fact that climate change is real. And they're trying to cause, and they knew the Supreme Court ruling was going to come down today, and it was probably going to be in favor of the government. So trying to drag staffers to committee is kind of is cheap partisan politics. Uh, I'll say the Liberals tried to do it 10 years ago, and the Conservatives fought against it. Pierre Poitiev and, okay. and John Baird okay. fought against it. So staffers, ministers should go. Deputy ministers should go. Political staffers don't need to go. They're not elected. Okay, Tim, does this indicate, though, a real intensity in terms of uh, the possibility of an imminent election? And Tories know that this could be a, 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 a front on which they could maybe gain some political points. Well, certainly they're playing the election game here, as Susan alluded to. It's a practice that's been brought forward before. They're trying to remind the Canadian public that there are some things there they ought to ask questions about. They're trying to challenge the ethics and the uh, the approach of the Liberal government. It's a typical opposition strategy. The other thing it may do, because as Susan rightly pointed out, Tools had some challenges in the last week or so, might motivate some some Conservatives. So it, it has dual purposes, Mark. Okay, uh, Kareem, last word to you on this. Uh, certainly the NDP has also been interested in uh, pursuing the matter of the WE uh, charity especially. Yeah, uh, I mean, it has happened before. I remember uh, the chief of staff, the prime minister testifying. I remember Daniel Jean, the former national yeah. security advisor testifying. So staff have testified in front of committee. So I'm not sure what the liberal are going with that. Maybe the, uh, the, the scope of it is a bit too large to them. But uh, if I'm the conservative too, not that I don't want to know uh, answers to a lot of questions that have happened during this pandemic, but you have to be uh, uh, knowledgeable about overreaching. You don't want to give ammunitions to the liberal government who's always eager to go into an election. So I would, I would tame that, but we have to get to the bottom of those issues. That's, uh, that's certainly uh, true. Okay. All three of you, I want to thank you very much and we'll check in with you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer, sitting in for Peter Van Dusen. On behalf of all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching.